Welcome back to Miskatonic University's Remote Education Program. This is Graphic Literature 210 offered through the Literature Department, Graphical Literature and Society and History, a.k.a. the Comics Course. Ah, oh, we are on the second run of Black Panther, the second substantial run, which is weirdly Black Panther Volume 1. So if you ever go to buy, like, the Marvel Masterworks, the Black Panther, this is actually Volume 2, because even though it is the first time he had his own dedicated title, uh, of course, Volume 1 of Marvel Masterworks covers Don McGregor's run in Jungle Action, which is phenomenal. Now, I am, as always, your instructor, Professor Hamby. Not Dr. Hamby, for reasons of academic jealousy that I won't go into right now. And my ever-suffering TA is here, Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. Now, we will dispense with the obvious news. Dr. Feckett is still out of operation, so I have no departmental updates. Uh, last time I heard anything from him, he was leaning his head out the window, crying in the rain. Uh, something about, please come back to me, uh, Fakwequa. So, you know... I don't know. Whatever. Uh, but we do have a guest host for today. Oh. So I'd like to introduce our guest host. Uh, you can't see him, unfortunately. Uh, I, my understanding is he's going to guest lecture in our Xeno Linguistics program. We'll see about that. <laughs> it's it, 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 Solly. S-O-L-I, uh, as I understand he prefers it pronounced. And uh, it's a bronze frog. Yeah. Say hello bronze. to Sully. Sure. Bronze. Well, I mean, all the frogs were bronze. They, I mean, they were colored gold in the comics, but I mean, they were bronze, technically. So, uh, Sully, how are you doing? Good. I'm glad to hear it. You, you okay, Rowan? Yeah. You, you look like you might be having an embolism. Nope, 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 not again. This can't happen again. Not again? Okay. Well, I mean, I'm doing pretty well. My doctor changed up my meds. Uh, I told him I was feeling, you know, anxious uh, but, and like the world was out to get me. And he told me that's because it is. So he gave me Xanax. And then I told him I felt like the universe was closing in on me. And he said that's because I was self-aware. So he gave me medicinal peyote. Um, and, you know, I'm doing pretty well now. Good for you. I just have to remember to not do the peyote on a full stomach. You know, it's much better on an empty stomach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so Black Panther. Th this is a strange run, and it's strange because it comes right after Don McGregor. And so it's more recent, but it feels so much older. Now, this happened as Jack Kirby came back from D.C. He had at D.C. been doing, he had introduced his fourth age, which really kind of what he, was something he'd wanted to do at Marvel, but he never actually introduced the properties at Marvel. Because they wanted to just keep doing. Marvel had a strong feeling that everything should reset so that people didn't have to really follow continuity too much. No real change. And Kirby wanted to do big epic stories. And he was interested in big science fiction ideas where ideas about this, the cosmos explained mythologies in a sort of futuristic view. So he was interested in like the science fiction gods and stuff like that. And so at DC, he launched... The New Gods, The Forever People, and Mr. Miracle, which explored this in ways that he had wanted to do in Thor. But his tenure at DC didn't work out the way he planned. Frankly, the guys at DC were kind of like, why are you hiring this Marvel guy and making such a big deal about him? 
I mean, if he was really that good, he would have worked here anyway, right? Um, so anyway, he wasn't real happy at DC. He came back to Marvel. Stan Lee was just thrilled to bits to have him back at Marvel. And he was told he could have any two titles he wanted. He wanted to work uh, on some titles with characters of his own creation, but he didn't want to kick anybody off their jobs. And so, and he didn't want to work on certain marquee titles he'd worked on before. He wanted to do something different. And so one of the titles he picked was Black Panther. It had just been vacated by Don McGregor. Don McGregor being let go had really nothing to do with Kirby coming back. It had to do with the title not selling well. But it had sold well enough that they thought maybe relaunched on its own it could do well. And who better to do it than Kirby? Kirby picked it up. And it's bizarre. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. It, it, it's bizarre. It feels bizarre. Because Don McGregor felt very new and fresh and relevant. It, Don McGregor's Black Panther and Jungle Action feels like it could have been written today. While, even though this was written after that, in the late 70s, this volume one of Black Panther feels like it was written in the 1940s. And it very much goes back to the roots of the Black Panther that was introduced all the way back in Fantastic Four. And it makes me wonder if Jack Kirby read Don McGregor's at all. Now, Jack Kirby was given the power to edit his own stuff, so nobody really worried about a thematic continuity. He was given absolute control of his own fiefdom. And so when we jump into Black Panther Volume 1, we get this strange world. You know, we, we had just left the world of Black Panther fighting the Ku Klux Klan um, and dealing with the social issues, Wakabi's divorce, hurt emotional feelings. And we jump straight into a pulp tale with big letters on the front that says King Solomon's Frog. There's nothing much more pulp than this story, actually. And it's weird because I love pulp. I actually, I love this run of Black Panther. And if it hadn't been Black Panther, if it had been anybody but Black Panther at this point, I would have just loved it to absolute bits. But it just tossed away everything Don McGregor had worked on, really. And that was is a pretty hard pill to swallow. So we jump into the middle of action as the Black Panther is walking into someone's study with a little person behind him. Or actually, I think based on his features, he'd be a dwarf, somebody suffering from dwarfism. His name is Abner Little. Ha ha ha. Yeah, funny. Um, and Abner's wearing a monocle and a hat and a purple suit and a walking cane and says, I was right. That's Queely in the chair. He's got the brass frog. Your friend doesn't seem alarmed by our visit. In fact, he's not moving at all. And we see a guy petrified who's obviously died of fright while holding up this metallic frog. He can keep the frog. He can keep it? Well, I was going to ask our guest what he thought. Oh, that's your cousin Frank. That's good to know. You don't... You, don't be a speciesist, Rowan. Don't be a speciesist. So then we turn the page to see this guy that we're later told is a samurai hiding. Now, this looks about as much like samurai armor as... I don't know, but it doesn't look like samurai armor. It, it looks like 
some far future interpretation of caveman armor, maybe. I who's gonna tell him just because he works as a theme at, as a samurai at a theme park doesn't mean he's an actual samurai. And it doesn't look like a samurai at a theme park. It it looks like bizarre. It looks like an alien race from the fifth dimension reinterpreted samurai for their culture. Which really kind of explains Jack Kirby's art in general, that he was actually from the fifth dimension. Okay. So they find this guy dead. They isolate the brass frog. You will find resources out there that refer to the brass frog as a Wakandian artifact. I'm sorry, people who write internet articles are often dumb as shit. Um, it is not a Wakandian artifact. It is from King Solomon's tomb. Now, there are some interesting things established here. Uh, one, we have Azari the Wise mentioned, which I don't think came up in Don McGregor's uh, Black Panther run. I think that's introduced here by uh, Jack Kirby. But Azari is T'Challa's grandfather. And he knew Abner Little, and his wisdom was well-renowned. We do see the Wakandans referred to again instead of Wakanda, singular. And it turns out that... Azari the Wise knew the Society of Collectors, people that were obsessed with the collection of these arcane artifacts. Now, if you're thinking, this sounds a lot like it could be like the plot of a Doc Sampson adventure mag from the 1930s. Yes, I mean, this is all pulp through and through, and it is absolutely fun pulp. The colors, the art, it's beautiful. Just why is T'Challa involved in it? Now, it turned out the frog had been in his grandfather's possession. Somehow he lost it, and now it's here. Uh, Abner Little makes T'Challa feel like he needs to be responsible for it. When T'Challa finally fights off the samurai, who they then just kind of dismiss as, oh, don't worry, the state police will pick him up. What? Uh, I mean, it's not like he'll get far, and he's still just a normal guy. Also, keep in mind... Throughout this time, this is easy to forget if you've watched a bunch of Avengers and modern and read modern Black Panther, but the Black Panther is still just a guy with enhanced uh, uh, abilities in a cloth suit. He's not really quite superhuman, and he doesn't have any super tech on him. So a guy in armor with a sword is still a legitimate threat to him. Uh. But not to state troopers. I mean, arguably, this version of the Black Panther is weaker than a ball cop with a gun. Oh, yeah. You have to keep reminding yourself to separate modern interpretations of Black Panther from this. Mm -hmm. Now, when we get to Christopher Priest, that's changed. Really, before we get to Christopher Priest. But as of Christopher Priest's run in Marvel Knights, totally changed. Isn't that right? Yep, that's right. So, when Abner gives... Uh, the Black Panther, this is a looking device, he looks at it, he sees all this super science cosmic circuitry inside the brass frog. Um, there are some later comics unrelated to Black Panther where they re-establish that the brass frogs are part of this like reality engine that can create a universe and stuff like that. Well, we won't get too much into that. But here, what they serve the purpose is, or serve the purpose of, is... To be a, uh, uh, um, a what's it? I'm forgetting the literary term right now, and I'm a literature professor, so this is horrible. 
but they're they're essentially Maltese falcons. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter what its real value is. The matter is how it moves the plot along. Uh, Goddesses Machina? No, Deus Ex Machina is a resolution to a story where uh, the resolution comes from outside. Okay. It's a mix something or other. Okay. Um, it, it's a nonsense term meant to indicate that it's just a thing that's there to move the plot along. Now, the brass frogs do do something. They summon creatures through time, always apparently dangerous creatures, mm-hmm. that tend to kill the people who accidentally summon them. Mm-hmm. But still, it's just something to move. Even those creatures that are summoned just move the plot along. Mm-hmm. They don't really have any motivation themselves. Now, T'Challa and Abner Little leave. They're attacked. Abner Little turns out to be flying a supersonic helicopter. That's quite a feat. With missiles, they fight off the attackers. He provides the backstory. There is a backstory that ties together uh, thieves looting King Solomon's tomb, Alibaba, Arabian myth, genies... All this stuff, e- even the Loch Ness Monster is explained as a creature summoned by one of the frogs. Of course. Or at this point, the frog. And this is all perfectly natural for Jack Kirby, who loves explaining mythology and history through science. Or science fiction. As the story progresses, they're attacked again, and eventually T'Challa and Abner Little are captured and handed over to the mistress of the people attacking them, a queen, an African Nubian queen, a princess who takes possession of all of them. And she says, Servile buffoon, you're fortunate that I didn't turn my nerve waves on the lot of you. Give me that artifact. Mr. Little is dead, mistress. Shall we finish the Black Panther as well? No, you fool. The princess has need of him for her plans. And if you look at her and you think to yourself, that looks a lot like Big Barda from The New Gods and Mr. Miracle, you'd be right. She looks almost exactly the same, except maybe with Granny Goodness's headdress. What can I say? When Jack Kirby found a design he liked, he stuck with it. I also think he liked thick, tall, muscular women. But that's just a theory I'm operating under. Mm-hmm. So the princess here is an African princess uh, her name is Xanda. She sees T'Challa as a potential mate, of course. And at one point in the story, she threatens to blow up the Wakandas with a missile. Because we're remember, we're still operating here that the Wakandas are a tribal nation that have just gathered a little bit of money from selling vibranium. Mm-hmm. So we're not yet at the later Wakanda that is super science. As the story progresses, at one point, T'Challa steals the brass frog back. Somebody shoots at him. The frog activates. And we have the giant-headed thing from Hatch 22. Basically a human for millions of years in the future. He's called the Six Million Year Man. And he becomes the new danger that could kill everybody. So they determine, after finally subduing him, that in order to send him back, they're going to have to get... The other brass frog. Oh, that's another cousin of yours? You got a lot of cousins, man. Yeah, I know. I feel you. Um, I'm of Irish descent. We have that too. So, by combining the brass frogs, they supposedly can control it and send the six million year man back, who has the potential ability to destroy the planet. So, now they have to team up. 
So they team up to return to King Solomon's tomb and find the other brass frog now together. Abner Little, Princess Zenda, and the Black Panther. Oh, so he's alive? Who, Abner Little? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he got shot at one point, but of course he was wearing a vest that protected him. Okay. So they use a sort of jump ship that allows them to jump through the upper atmosphere. They quickly move across the world. They... Apparently, you know, it's an impossible feat to find and enter King Solomon's tomb, um, which is why it's such a mystery, and people need the few artifacts from it so badly. So they do it in a couple of pages with no problem. Um, Obviously. And and then the $6 million-year man kind of follows him, because apparently, even though they have all this super high-tech, including dart guns that reliably work even on men from millions of years in the future— they don't have IV drips to keep this shit going. Huh. So he follows them, starts creating a mess. They get into the tomb, and then they're faced by a protector that, of course, only the Black Panther can defeat. And as the storyline goes on, it's just battle and battle. There's buildings being destroyed. There's monsters picking up columns from buildings. He's throwing the Black Panther. There's energy blast destroying stuff. There's midgets throwing themselves, or dwarfs, or little people, or whatever he is, they never say, across the room, you know, capturing African princess, princes and throwing them out of the way. I mean, it's great. It is a great series of action scenes. And then finally, the, the monster guarding the tomb has left nothing but a couple of broken, burning feet. They still have the six million year man to deal with, but fortunately he doesn't pay attention to what he does and actually blasts open the hole into the treasure chamber himself. Now let's remember, only the Black Panther could defeat that monster, even though the Black Panther could get shot by a mall cop and killed easily. So... Not really sure what kept people out of this tomb, really, to be honest. Anyway, we're rolling with it. And when they open the tomb, or it's blasted open... We see some of Jack Kirby's art that just goes crazy. I mean, things that look like giant diamonds attached to alien machinery, all this ancient sci-fi stuff. It's, I mean, this is the stuff that inspired, like, ancient aliens, crap TV shows and stuff like that. And, of course, Jack Kirby was heavily inspired by a book called Chariot of the Gods that said that aliens might have visited Earth and inspired the mythology of ancient people. And he's definitely running with that here. So as we keep going, we see the two collectors, Abner Little and Princess Zanda. They seem to have completely forgotten that there's a creature that could destroy their planet, and certainly them without effort, right behind them as they start caressing, fondling, and drooling over everything in this chamber. And T'Challa says, Have you two gone mad? Don't you realize that death is at our very heels? T'Challa became Indian at some point, sorry. We've got work to do. And then, of course, an explosion happens, and he drags their stupid dumbasses after him. Uh, there are other collectors also, but, you know, this is clearly T'Challa's dealing with this sort of pulp organization. They find the other brass frog, is able to combine them, and he zaps the six-million-year man back. That was three uh, issues of a comic. That didn't feel like much. It went quick. And that's one of the beauties of Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby moves stuff along. Mm-hmm. Jack Kirby never saw a plot that he couldn't accelerate through. Mm-hmm. Because if there's a, a... Jack Kirby did not understand that concept 
of a silent beat. Jack Kirby was like, if shit hasn't blown up in the last page, it's time for it. <laughs> Jack Kirby had an aesthetic, and he and he rolled with it. So, and, and I do want to point out here, you know, I know that you like the art. This is one of the things that people hated. Some people hated about Jack Kirby's art, and the people at DC hated. He always did these square fingers. See how he has these square fingers on T'Challa? Yeah. And even the claws are kind of square? Yeah. Hmm. But Kirby worked with these big blocky shapes, and it was dramatic, mm. but it wasn't photorealistic at all. No. Extremely stylized. What do you think of Jack Kirby's art, the more you look at it? I actually like it. I think it actually works for this. I don't think it would work for anything outside of comics, though. I, I'm not sure about that. I think it works for a number of things. But, I mean, he, he is one of the great talents of comics, mm -hmm. and it certainly worked for his stories. Uh, but you can't help but as you read along go, but we could be doing a story about Africa's and about emotions and about the modern world. And we could be doing something more than a pulp adventure. But it's not where we are. So we jump back into the pulp adventure. So as we proceed along, uh, T'Challa continues to fight statues. Boxes that emit laser beams are found. T'Challa keeps taking away magic science toys from Xanda and Abner Little, eventually building up a pile of them behind him. Uh, like, he keeps taking away, you know, dangerous toys from babies. These are the type of people who would read out of the book in Latin. Right. You know, th these are the people you do not let near the Necronomicon. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, eventually they end up in King Solomon's chariot, which is like literally the chariot of the gods. I mean, it, it is a sci-fi chariot that can fly around the world. This is Jack Kirby getting to take his inspiration and make it literal in his comic. It is the chariot of the gods. And they fly out. The, and of course, conveniently, the whole place basically blows up in an atom bomb behind him. Then they end up fighting samurai. Again? Except these actually kind of look like samurai. You know. And he ends up meeting the other collectors. And it turns out to be an association of about five of them. And this is the point at which he's basically threatened to have the Wakandas destroyed by a missile. Because for a hidden nation that nobody knows where it is, of course the bad guys always seem to know where it is. Who's hiding this Good place? guys don't. The Avengers can't find it. That was established when he was a member of the Avengers. The Avengers are like, I don't know nothing about no Wakandas. We got the Vision. We got AI robots. We have built all. We built Ultron. We we have we we've defeated galactic monsters and we can't find shit on Earth. Meanwhile, you have like Ulysses Claw, who's one step away from being you know a criminal boy band manager. <laughs> And the collectors, who are basically spending their free time trolling eBay, and yet they know where the Wakandas are. The fuck? Really? I mean, Thor can't figure out where the Wakandas are. Quicksilver can't figure out. He can cross every square meter of this planet in a couple of minutes, and he can't figure it out. Meanwhile, people who have negative ratings on eBay know where it is. Maybe the secret's on eBay. Maybe so. So as, as the story proceeds, 
uh, in issue five, T'Challa fights a Yeti, which is reminiscent of the white apes and Don McGregor's jungle action. At least I kind of hope it was meant to be a callback to that. But knowing Jack Kirby, it was probably just because he figured he could get a fight in against a Yeti. Probably. And then we see T'Challa looking at this tiny shriveled corpse, which he's told is this super athletic samurai he fought a little bit ago. And we find out that what the collectors want him to get is the elixir of immortality, the water of life, what Ponce de Leon sought. Again, we have Jack Kirby going back to the old mythology, uh, the old stories for his inspiration. And Abner Little shows up, of course, in a ridiculous tiny samurai outfit because he would. In the end, T'Challa and Abner end up in an underwater civilization of samurai who have been there for centuries using the water of immortality to keep themselves alive while isolating themselves. It's a little weird. Yeah. It's more than a little weird. Now, we do begin to get the setup here. This is issue six. This is the end of the collector storyline. And the next storyline after this is going to take us back to Wakanda. So we do have a little setup here where we see somebody who has been ruling Wakanda on T'Challa's part while he's gone, a regent, and they're being deposed. There's a coup where he's being thrown out. I'm going to save the details of this for the next class session, but General Jakara is taking over. And he has dreams to be a world conqueror and use Wakanda's power to take over the world. Kind of shadows of the Black Panther movie, right? Mm-hmm. But we'll come back to that. This is That's just to lead into that story. T'Challa faces off against the head of the samurai. Of course, Abner Little is a little creep and he steals the water. T'Challa has to intervene and use his honor. The whole thing is kind of silly. And if it weren't for the artificial construct of the honor, there's no reason the samurai wouldn't kill both of them right now. But T'Challa actually tears the water away from Abner and gives it back, to which the head of the samurai says, it is wise of you to give to us what we could take anyway. And basically, because of his status as a king and his honor, he's able to get them out alive. And so in six issues, we explored King Solomon, the chariot of the gods, frogs, and... Samurai in possession of Ponce de Leon's Spring of Eternal Youth. We covered a lot of ground in six issues. Yeah. And it's all this old mythology being re-explored. It's very pulp. Look, I know you hate pulp, but come on. This just don't have an... Look, not everything can be about frogs. I know there weren't enough frogs for you in the last three issues, but I'll see if there are some female frogs in future issues. Okay? You're welcome. Um, so what do you think? I mean, you, you've not really seen this before. And after Don McGregor's run, it's kind of a shock to the system to make this transition, isn't it? Yeah, it feels like we went from a very, very meaningful story with lots of impact to 
Well, just an action story. Absolute escapism. No, no greater substance at all. Now, it's well done. I mean, you can't help but admire the craft. And as a pulp story, it is written beautifully. Absolutely beautifully as a pulp story. But it feels lacking. Now, it's the sort of thing that if it was unrelated to Black Panther... You know, if it had been some other vehicle and I'd read a bunch of serious stuff, it'd be like, okay, this would be a nice palate cleanser. This would be a nice break. But it's not what I want from Black Panther at this point. Don McGregor has established the character as something more significant. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like suddenly if someone took, you know, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes and just wrote stupid comedies with him, which they've done. And that was awful, too. Yeah. You so, just can't go back. Right. You can't go back. Now, fascinatingly, he doesn't actually violate any of the iconic elements of Black Panther. And one of the fascinating things we'll see when we get to the Christopher Priest run is how Christopher Priest kind of tries to reconcile this with the Black Panther we know from Don McGregor. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have to squint and reimagine. Now, in our next class session, we're going to go forward. Now, I want to spend more time on that class session because we're going back to the Wakandas. And we're going to meet some members of Black Panther's family who will never show up again. Woo! Because people looked at it and went, no. (laughs) No, no, no. J.J. Walker on Good Times wasn't that stupid. And we're not making these characters African royalty. Um, And that's all I got to say for that. Mm -hmm. So we're a little under our usual hour. In fact, we're way under. Which just shows you the difference in the stories. Yeah, there's just not as much to talk about. But with that said, I do think it's fun. Mm -hmm. And we're going to continue this next week. But for now... I'm going to say goodbye. Our new uh, colleague wants to say goodbye. Rowan, what do you want to say? I I don't think she... You're a faculty member. She's a student. That's not appropriate, man. No. I'm never coming back. You always say that. And you always mean it. All right. We're out. Bye. Bye.